0: Welcome to episode number 51 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi of draftanalyst.com, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline as we flip the calendar finally to April, a.k.a. the month of the NFL Draft. The other significant thing about the start of April is the end of the Pro Day circuit, as workouts will conclude Thursday. Tony, did you ever think they would
1: end? No, I mean, uh, Pro Day month of March is just crazy for me. One, because of my personality. I got to try and get as much information on every single Pro Day as possible. And I kind of freak out if I don't get it out there first. But it's basically never ending. I mean, there were days where there were six or seven Pro Days and, you know, it's impossible to, uh, to get other work done, whether it be film work or reports. Because I'm trying, I'm making so many phone calls and trying to get so much information on the workouts. I still have a slew of workouts that I haven't covered. The Parnum kid from Stetson, I got the information on that that'll be going up soon. I was late with the Boise State pro day, and it's like this every single year. I mean, March is just it's just nonstop go. You know, the funny thing is, is now as we get closer to the uh, draft, there's a lot of time on my hands. But did I ever think I never did? I always get excited when it starts off, and then uh, in the middle of March. I'm just crazed out of my mind. So we're almost finished with it. That's a good thing.
0: Absolutely. And, hey, you get, uh, you get a slight break in April, as you said. And as we mentioned on last week's show, with those pro days coming to an end, team personnel is going to start to gather back at the team facilities. And as a result, we'll start to get an idea of what certain teams plan to do in the draft, what their boards may look like. But in the meantime, we'll focus on a few safeties who hurt themselves at recent pro days. First on that list is Washington's Taylor Rapp who ran the 40 in the mid 47s on Monday at the Huskies Pro Day. Now, nobody thought Rapp was going to be a burner, Tony, but what does this time mean for him?
1: Well, I mean, he was always known as a strong safety type who really needed to play when the action was in front of him. What does the 40 mean? It means no first round. He's not going to be a top 32 selection. It means that any thought or opinion that he could play free safety is basically out the window. It also limits the teams that would be willing to play him over the slot receiver. You just can't have a guy in coverage That uh, runs in the four sevens.
0: Now, with the first round out of the question for Rat, where do you think he ends up in the draft now?
1: You know, he's still a very good football player. He's known as a leader on the field and he's known as a quality prospect off the field. I think given the limited depth at safety and I think given his film, I still believe he lands in round two, although it's probably going to be the second half of round two.
0: Now, we previously reported that Alabama's Deontay Thompson and Christian Miller would run the 40 during the Tide's second pro day. But on Tuesday, you tweeted that neither did. We'll stick with the safety theme for now. There are already significant questions about Thompson's long speed. What does not running the 40 here do to his draft stock?
1: You know, in my opinion, it kills any chance of Thompson being a top 45 choice. I'm told that at that Pro Day earlier this week, Thompson posted a 33-inch vertical jump and a broad jump of 9 feet 10 inches. Those are poor marks, and that's just going to lead scouts to believe that had Thompson run, he probably would have struggled to get under 4.65 seconds. I'm told the Washington Redskins and the Los Angeles Chargers both had large contingents on hand for the workouts, and both were pretty pissed off that Thompson didn't run. Someone from the workout described Thompson to me as sliding down draft boards and not very athletic. Now- now, we need to be fair about it and tell both sides of the story rather than just beat up on Thompson. I'm told that scouts were alerted beforehand that Thompson would not run the 40. I'm also told that his wrist is still an issue. Remember, he had surgery for a torn ligament in his wrist, which kept him on the sidelines during the combine. I'm told it was a situation where he's unable to come out of a three-point stance for the start of the 40, as the pressure on the wrist would have just been too much. Now, could he have used his other wrist, his good wrist instead? I don't know. Would scouts have given him the opportunity to run the 40 out of a standing start? Again, I don't know. But the bottom line is scouts were unhappy that they did not get a 40 time on Thompson.
0: So like rap, round one is out of the question for Thompson, isn't it? Since you said he's not really a candidate for the top 45 anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think right now the best comparison for Deontay Thompson is former Tide safety Ronnie Harrison, who at one point was projected as a potential first rounder, but tested poorly and there were questions about his athleticism and he ended up as a third round pick in last year's draft as the 93rd overall selection.
0: I'll we'll interrupt the safety discussion for a second and we will talk about Christian Miller. Obviously he'd been dealing with a hamstring issue throughout the off season. With that in mind, will not running the 40 hurt his draft stock?
1: It's going to because scouts want to get a time on these guys, but I don't think it's going to hurt it as much as Thompson's. You know, remember, Miller is a senior, he's got a big body of work behind him compared to Thompson. You know, plus his marks of 38 and a half inches in the vertical jump at the combine and nine feet, 10 inches in the broad jump were solid. I have Miller graded as a third round prospect. I think by not running the 40, it may hurt him in the sense that he's going to be pushed into the third day of the draft. But the early third day, probably a fourth round prospect.
0: Now back to safeties again, but in a more positive light this time, which player at the position on the back end is really moving up draft boards?
1: Without a doubt, the fastest rising safety right now is Juan Thornhill of Virginia. A lot of people are comparing him to former first-round selection Byron Jones in the sense that Thornhill is checking off all the boxes in the pre-draft process and performing much better than expected. He was solid at the senior ball. He was superb during the combine, and he looked really good during pro day. Now, one of the reasons Thornhill is moving up draft board so fast is that scouts believe he can play safety or cornerback at the next level. He did play uh, cornerback at Virginia during his junior year before being moved back to safety uh, last year as a senior, also played safety as a sophomore. And while I have my doubts about Thornhill being a a cornerback at the next level, teams think he can handle the position on a full-time basis.
0: Now, if his combine workout was any indication, Thornhill definitely has the physical ability to play corner. His broad jump was in the 99th percentile for cornerbacks. His vertical was in the 98th percentile. Both his 4'4", 240 and 21 reps on the bench were in the top 15% of the historical combine data. And he did all that at six 205 pounds. The only thing he really lacks that you'd like to see is top-notch length, which is something that Byron Jones, who you mentioned before, did have coming out of UConn. That being said, Tony, how early in the draft can we expect Thornhill to be selected?
1: I doubt he gets out of the top 42 selections, and there is a possibility he could land in the late part of round one.
0: Now, would you care to speculate on a team that may take a flyer on him on the first act?
1: Possibly the Seattle Seahawks, who I think would use him at cornerback, though I think it would be a situation where the Seahawks would move down into the later part of round one, then select Thornhill.
0: Now, that's interesting since Seattle tends to go for corners that have more of that length I was speaking of. But as we know, the Seahawks are certainly not adverse to moving around in the first round. They have a definite tendency to surprise everyone with their pick with Rashad Penny last year being a prime example of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Seahawks are a team that have known to work the draft. And, you know, if they like Thornhill, I think that's the direction they go.
0: On to quarterbacks now, and Tony, you tweeted Wednesday that the Oakland Raiders spent a significant amount of time with quarterback Dwayne Haskins on Monday. They worked him out on Tuesday. You alluded to this on last week's show, when you mentioned that everyone seemed to be penciling in Haskins to the Giants at number six overall, and that he may not make it that far because the Raiders could grab him with the fourth pick. Now, the real question here is, do you think the Raiders' interest in Haskins is real, or is it a smokescreen to try to get another team to trade up?
1: Yeah, I think there's absolute interest in Haskins from the Raiders. You know, if John Gruden feels that Haskins is an upgrade over Derek Carr, he'll pull the trigger if Haskins is available. You know, look at the other moves he's made since taking over the franchise.
0: Yeah, Gruden certainly hasn't been afraid to go against the grain and really kind of shock the world with his moves. I mean, he traded Khalil Mack to the Bears for two non-premium first-round picks, a third-rounder and a sixth-rounder, and even gave back a 2020 second-rounder to make that move as well. Rather than paying one of the top pass rushers in the game, they moved Amari Cooper to Dallas for the Cowboys first rounder rather than paying him almost $14 million for his fifth year option in 2019 or extending him beyond that. As a result, though, Oakland now has five first round picks in the next two drafts, so Gruden can really try to rebuild this team in his own image, albeit without a defensive player of the year caliber defender and a talented number one receiver.
1: Yeah, it's not unusual to see a cleansing of the roster when a new regime takes over. You know, when Howie Roseman was put back in charge with the Eagles and they brought Doug Peterson in, promptly began trading just about all the players that Chip Kelly had brought into the franchise. And the end result for the Eagles was a Super Bowl title. We're seeing that here now in New York with the Giants. Eric Flowers, Eli Apple, Odell Beckham, Damon Harrison, Olivier Vernon were all drafted or signed by Jerry Reese and shown the door in one way or another by Dave Gettleman.
0: Speaking of Beckham and Vernon, let's not forget about John Dorsey and the Browns, who have been purging many of Sashi Brown's draft picks from the roster, whether via trade or outright release recently.
1: Yeah, and exactly. And like the the Eagles, it looks to be for the better in Cleveland as, you know, the Browns now move towards the 2019 season as legitimate playoff contenders and likely to compete for the AFC North title.
0: Now we'll move to receiver talk in just a moment, but first, Please support the Draft Analyst by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Trapoti, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst 1, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch with the show. Now, David Stills of West Virginia is a guy who really receives a variety of opinions. Before we get into that, we have some background on him, so bear with me for a moment here. His football story really is full of twists and turns. Back in 2010, Lane Kiffin was the head coach at USC. He drew headlines then for offering a scholarship to a 13-year-old quarterback. That 13-year-old was David Sills. So before Sills put up video game numbers the past two seasons with Will Greer at West Virginia, where he caught 33 touchdowns over 25 games, he was a good enough quarterback to get a scholarship offer before he even took a high school snap. Now Sills went on Good Morning America, his name was all over ESPN, this was a big deal. But Kiffin was fired shortly thereafter, and Steve Sarkeesian took over. Now Sark said that he would honor the scholarship, but he also said that Sills wasn't what he wanted in a quarterback. Now Sills also broke a knuckle in high school, and it actually impacted his throwing release enough where he was never the same passer. In the end, he ended up at West Virginia with the intention to play quarterback, dabbled at receiver a bit for Daniel Holgerson as a freshman and looked good there. Seven catches, 131 yards, and two touchdowns, but he still wanted to play quarterback. So he transferred to El Camino, which is a junior college in Los Angeles, and he had the plan to play for a season there and head back to the FBS as a quarterback. But at the end of the season, the problem was nobody was interested in Sills as a signal caller. Holgerson, though, really couldn't shake the glimpses he had from Sills at receiver as a freshman in 2015. He brought him back aboard 33 visits to the end zone later, and now we're talking about Sills as a legitimate NFL prospect. Now, incredible story aside, what have you heard about Sills' skills from scouts?
1: Well, they grade him as one of the purest receivers in this year's class, which will come as a surprise to no one. But what is somewhat surprising is they love his upside. And usually when you use the word upside, it's reserved for someone who's a great athlete, but an unpolished football player. With Sills, it's a situation where he's a great athlete, who hasn't played the position for all that long, as you just detailed. He came to college as a quarterback. Hence, they believe that Sills' best football is ahead of him, and he's just going to continually get better as he learns the receiver position.
0: And it does make sense. Rather than trying to harness the athleticism of a player who hasn't produced on the field and maybe more of an athlete than an actual football player, teams are looking here at a guy who has succeeded at two positions in his past Obviously not quarterback at the college level, but this is a guy who is a football player. He's been a productive player at a new position with limited experience there. The question then becomes, how much more productive can he be with additional refinement as a receiver? And the question I have for you, Tony, is who are you hearing has the most interest in Sills to this point?
1: Yeah, I'm told the New Orleans Saints really like Sills and the Pittsburgh Steelers are in love with Sills. He'd be a great fit for both teams. But I could absolutely see the Steelers using a pick in the fourth round to acquire David Sills.
0: Now, last week, you mentioned that the New England Patriots and Green Bay Packers were potential landing spots for Andy Isabella out of UMass. Do we have any further updates on the diminutive slot receiver?
1: Yeah, I continue to hear that interest from the Packers is high in Isabella. But the question is... Would they be willing to use his second-round selection to draft him? They may need to because I hear that the Arizona Cardinals really love Isabella and they believe he'd be a great fit for their new offense. I first reported the Cardinals' interest in Isabella at draftanalyst.com immediately after UMass's Pro Day on March 21st, and I can tell you, the rumblings are just getting louder and louder. And from where we sit right now, I think the Cards could take Isabella at the top of round three.
0: Switching back to defense here, Linebackers are all over the board right now leading up to the draft. Have you heard of any who could be drafted earlier than people presently predict?
1: Sione Takitaki of BYU. There are some who feel he could land in the top 60 picks of the draft. I don't agree with that, but I think he'll be off the board by the end of round three.
0: Now, why is Takitaki making such a late march up draft
1: boards? Teams like his speed. They like his quickness, his instincts against the run. He's another run and chase linebacker who gets from point A to point B very quickly to make the play.
0: Now, we talk often about the importance of interviews at the Combine. Taki Taki missed much of 2015 and all of 2016. After being suspended, he was accused of stealing gear from the women's soccer and track teams. But he returned in 2017, a married man, got his career back on track. Does it seem like most teams are comfortable with his prior issues and feel that he's matured enough to overlook what happened three to four years ago?
1: Absolutely. I've not heard any bad reviews from his Combine interviews. And, you know, to his credit, it seems Taki Taki has learned from his past.
0: Now, who are you hearing is interested in Taki Taki?
1: First, I'm told the Atlanta Falcons have a lot of interest in Taki Taki, and they'll be looking to add some depth at the position in the draft. The Cincinnati Bengals also like Taki Taki. He could be a contingency plan for the team if they lose out on Devin White early in round one. I'm told the Kansas City Chiefs also have a lot of interest in Taki Taki. And personally, I just like saying his name.
0: Same. I mean, that was a fun segment just because I just got to say talkie talkie like 10 times in a row, and I really, I really am not disappointed in that. But we're going to move on to Florida here where we have some breaking news on one of their top-rated prospects. But first, let's talk about a guy we've talked a lot about lately, and that's Ja'Kai Polite. He's obviously become quite polarizing after his truly disastrous pre-draft process, and I really don't say that lightly. The chatter on the pass rusher is all over the place. He's projected to be anywhere from a first-round pick to a fifth-round choice. Tony, can you clear the air for us a bit?
1: I hope so. A couple things. You know, first of all, I'm told uh, Polite is a reserved kid and was not expecting the sort of treatment he received during combine interviews, and he personally, he just shut down. He gave a lot of one-word answers, and it just seemed like an uncomfortable situation for him. You know, then there's the hamstring issue that has cropped up before the combine and his added weight. As I posted right after Florida's Pro Day, Polite added 21 pounds of muscle in the off-season because teams thought his playing weight of 237 pounds was a little bit too light. Which resulted in the hamstring issues and reduced quickness and speed. So there are a variety of things going on. Now
0: the question here is where are teams going to use him at the next level? Defensive end? He's going to stand over tackle? What's the deal?
1: I'm told that all the 3-4 teams, all the 3-4 defenses are taking a hard look at Polite. And a lot of them are bringing him in for official visits. So he'll be standing over tackle at the next level. I would expect him to lose some weight and some of the muscle he's added in the past few months to get back down to a weight that he can comfortably handle.
0: Where do you think he lands in the draft?
1: I think in the end, Polite ends up in the second day of the draft. He's too talented a pass rusher to slip any further. You know, let's compare him to Randy Gregory, who was projected as a top 10 pick in 2015, but ended up late in round three. And Polite really has a fraction of the -the off-the-field issues that Randy Gregory did. As I said, teams that run the 3-4 defenses around the league are taking a long look at him. And I know that the New York Jets, who still need a pass rusher, really like Polite. And hey, they could
0: end up getting a steal on a guy who is a first round talent in almost everybody's book before the pre-draft process where certainly he's had his issues. But if the Jets can kind of get a discount on a guy like that, it may help them not regret striking out as much in free agency,
1: yeah, absolutely. Then this assumes that polite's able to get his act back together. You know he's able to get his weight down to something where he's comfortable and there's no hamstring issues. And more importantly, that he's able to uh, handle adversity at the next level because I think my fear for Polite is he's kind of a marked man now. He's kind of a guy that's got a target on his back, and there may be some people, whether it be in a locker room, whether it be in the media, that tend to try and target him to you know, get him to react in a way that they want him to. Hopefully he's able to put that behind him and, and be a productive player because he was an enjoyable guy to watch on the college level.
0: Now, we buried the lead just a little bit here, but Tony, what's that breaking news we mentioned earlier about one of Polite's college teammates?
1: Yeah, it pertains to uh, offensive tackle Juwan Taylor. Earlier today, I was alerted that there are medical concerns surrounding Taylor, which has raised a few red flags from a number of teams. Some are quite concerned about the situation, which was not explained to me in detail. I would expect to learn more over the next coming days or if not the next week or so. I know there's always been a concern about weight fluctuation as Taylor's tipped the scale in the upper 300-pound range a few times at Florida. So let's see what happens here on out, but I'm told that there are medical red flags popping up on Juwan Taylor.
0: Now To his credit, Taylor was a quite spelt 312 pounds at the Combine, so at least he came to Indianapolis in shape, unlike his teammate. Now, what does this Taylor news mean for Andre Dillard, who's another tackle set to go off the board early in the draft?
1: Yeah, I don't know that Polite didn't come into the combine out of shape. I think he may have been in too big, too good a shape or it may be a situation where he just added too much muscle and and bulk to his frame. So as far as what it means uh, for Andre Dillard, the left tackle from Washington, good things because Dillard keeps checking all the boxes. He had a terrific senior season. He looked good at the Senior Bowl. He performed well at the combine. As as I posted just prior to this podcast, he impressed a lot of people during Pro Day. Dillard is the best pure left tackle in this draft. No one comes close. Every year at the combine, I do a sit-down interview with NewYorkGiants.com, and they asked me if Jawan Taylor was the best offensive tackle in the draft. I responded by saying that Jawan Taylor would likely be the first offensive tackle selected in the draft. But two or three years down the road, I expected Andre Diller to be the best tackle from this year's class, and I absolutely feel that way. Where is he going to be selected? I think the Buffalo Bills are going to give him a long, hard look and strong consideration with that ninth pick. He'd be an upgrade at left tackle over Deion Dawkins, who they then could slide inside to his natural position at guard. And it's always a good thing to get a blindside protector for a young quarterback like Josh Allen.
0: And that's it for the 51st episode of the draft analysts presented by the believe sports podcast network. Do you believe if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review and feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. Also head over to draft to catch the tail end of our pro day analysis this week and everything else related to the draft, which is now just three weeks away on behalf of Tony Pauline. I'm Chris Trophote.